Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of Revelation, chapter 19. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. After the church age, chapter 4, John is caught up in heaven, and the first thing he sees, it's beautiful. You can't believe it. It's colors and prisms, and the throne of God is set in heaven, and John sees this crystal sea, and it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen there in chapter 4 as he's been caught up into heaven, which brings us to chapter 5 as Jesus stands to take the title deed to the planet Earth from the hand of the Father, and Jesus opens the seals, and judgment comes out upon the earth, which brings us to chapter 6, the Great Tribulation. The Bible calls it a time of Jacob's trouble. And from chapter 6 through chapter 19 is the great tribulation. It's an awful, awful time on the planet earth. And so John is told in that three-section outline, write the things which are the things which you have seen and the things which will take place after this. Now, here we are, chapter 19, we are at the end of the tribulation. The week before last, we looked at chapter 17, the false religious system of Babylon that is dominated by the false prophet and and he's devoured and that system is destroyed. We looked at the two Babylons over the last couple of weeks. And then last week, we looked at chapter 18, the political, the commercial Babylon that is controlling the world will be wiped out in one single hour. Chapter 17 and chapter 18 are the religious, political, commercial Babylon that is destroyed and is gone forever. Which brings us to chapter 19. John says now here in our text, verse 1, after these things, after what things? After the Babylonian system, religious, political, commercial, economic As after that system is destroyed and gone forever, after these things, we move back up into the heavenly scene. And in heaven, they are praising and worshiping God. And praise and worship breaks out into heaven. And all of heaven gives God a standing ovation here in chapter 19. I love chapter 19. Did you notice how many times you see and hear the word, Alleluia? Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Notice that, Alleluia occurs four times in the first six verses. And this is very interesting for me to see. I think it will be for you. It is the first time that this word Alleluia, or Hallelujah, is used in the New Testament. And that's very interesting. First time it's used in the New Testament, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit reserved this word 
for this book at this moment. And the word hallelujah, it's a Hebrew word, and you can hear it over and over again in the Psalms, and I love the Psalms, hallelujah and praise the Lord all the way through the Psalms, but this word hallelujah, it is actually a Hebrew word, and it means to praise Yah. J-A-H. You might want to write that down if you're taking notes. It means to praise Jehovah. It means to praise God. And it's a great word because no matter what language you speak, whether you speak Hebrew or Italian or Greek or Spanish or whatever you speak, whatever language around the world, this is the one, actually there's two, amen, which means so be it, and alleluia are the two words that are universal. No matter what language you speak. I've done a bit of traveling. I've been to a couple of countries, and, uh, and, and if you have, you know. I mean, when you get to a country in various places in the world, there's certain words that you want to find out and discover and begin to use and know how to speak pretty much as soon as you get there. And one of the important phrases for me that I need to, I learn to speak when I get into any country is where's the bathroom? I mean, you, you got to know where the bathrooms are and you got to be able to ask people or glass of water, please. Uh, thank you. Hello. Good morning. Some of those words you, you got to learn in different languages. But this word, hallelujah, you don't have to know any other word. You can walk up to people, walk up to Christians in other countries, look them in the face and say, hallelujah. And they go, hallelujah. I love that. It's a universal word, and it is interesting to me that God reserves this word, hallelujah, first time in the New Testament, and he uses it in connection with final victory. Isn't that interesting? Hallelujah, because God is coming to judge, and the wicked are going to be removed from the earth. Hallelujah, because the great tribulation is over. Hallelujah, because Jesus is coming. Hallelujah, because the church is going to get married to Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, because true and righteous are his judgments in verse 2. Because in verse 3, he has judged the great harlot who formerly corrupted the earth. Hallelujah. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God. And then a voice comes from the throne saying, everyone, small and great, worship God because the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, beginning in verse 7, I want you to notice something here. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 19, it's almost as if God turns his attention from the harlot, the Babylonian harlot, to the bride. Interesting. In other words, enough about Satan's bride. All attention is turned to the bride of Christ. Now, who is the bride of Christ? All born-again believers are a part of the bride of Christ. Amen? Not just those that go to Calvary Chapel. Not that just those that go to the Baptist church down the street. Not just those who go to the Presbyterian or the Methodist church, but all of those who are born again believers are a part of the 
bride of Christ. And Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul said, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you, note, as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then again, in Ephesians chapter 5, if you're taking notes, it talks about the church being the bride of Christ and Jesus being the bridegroom. Now, keep in mind, we are at the end of the tribulation and the bride has made herself ready, ready to attend the feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This morning, I told you that chapter 19 is the story of two Dinners, two suppers. This morning we're going to talk about one, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then next week when you come back, we're going to talk about the second, that dinner that takes place at the Battle of Armageddon. So this morning we're going to talk about for quite a bit of the remainder of our time this morning, talk about that first supper. Now listen, give me your attention. There are some who have questioned And they've said that if the rapture of the church took place in chapter 4 before the tribulation started, they've said, then why are we just getting to the wedding feast? If we were caught up into heaven with the Lord in chapter 4, then why has there been 13 chapters, chapter 6 through 19, the seven years of tribulation, and we're just getting to the wedding feast? Why? Well, I think the answer is simple. I think the answer is found in the Jewish wedding feast. The Jewish wedding feast. Now, the Jewish wedding feast is different than the weddings that we have here in Western civilization. Yesterday, I officiated a wedding at the Raleigh Rose Garden. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's absolutely beautiful. There's roses all around. It smells so nice. And I, some of you guys were at that wedding but uh, with me and uh, with the bride and the groom. But yesterday was absolutely the hottest day known to mankind. And we have this outdoor wedding. And the Raleigh Rose Garden is right there by, by state. You know, by, by, by North Carolina State. And so, um, and, and when you're on like the main road, the, the actual rose garden is lower than the main road. So literally, it felt like Hades. It was so hot. We were sweating so much. And, you know, I was telling the people, as a matter of fact, I said, you know, I would really be embarrassed right now if I was sweating this much and you were not. But since we're all, everyone at this wedding, we were all literally soaking wet. It was unbelievable. It really caused me to understand and to realize, now I know why I'm a Christian. Because I can't deal with hell. Hell is hot. And and I experienced just a little smidgen of hell yesterday. It was awful. Just awful. So we're doing getting ready for the wedding, and I stepped forward with the groom and with the best man. And we step forward, and then the matron of honor, she stepped forward. We got an informal wedding. We just kind of stepped forward together, and we stood there. And uh, when I saw the, the bride in the back, I said to the audience, I said, let's stand. 
And when they stood, you know, one of the sisters was, was singing. It was a beautiful moment. And the bride was standing there in the back with her escort. And she comes down the aisle. And everyone's attention turns to the bride. And they're all checking out her dress. You know, they look, oh, man, she looks beautiful. Look at that dress. Oh, she's great. And, you know, and all attention, all focus, all honor is being given at that moment to the bride. Now, in the Jewish marriage ceremony or the Jewish marriage feast, it's not like that. That's the way we do it here in this country and in Western civilization. But in the Jewish wedding all attention is not necessarily on the bride. Guess what? You guessed it. It's on the bridegroom. Very, very interesting. So what I'm going to give you this morning, take notes, write this down. Three points. The Jewish marriage arrangement happens in three stages. And I want you to write these down. Very important. We'll tie it all together later. The Jewish marriage arrangement happened in three stages. The first stage is the engagement stage. The engagement stage. And then the second, we're going to talk about all three of these this morning. The second is the betrothal stage. The betrothal stage. And then last, but certainly not least, then we have the actual wedding. So three stages of the Jewish marriage relationship, the engagement stage, the betrothal stage, and the wedding. Beautiful, beautiful wedding. First of all, the engagement stage. Now, Jewish marriages, unlike in our country, Jewish marriages were arranged by the father, which I personally think we should go back to that. Amen, parents? Because, see, I'm a father. I know. You know how the girls are nowadays. Oh, daddy's so cute. Oh, that nose, that little tiny nose. He's so, oh, he's the best things in sliced bread. And, oh, he's so good looking. See, that's how they choose. A father, I don't care how cute he is. I want to know, does he have a J-O-B? <laughs> Do you work? Are you lazy? I think we should go back to that. What do you think, parents? If you agree with that, clap your hands. I think we should, I think we should go back to that. We'd have a whole lot better marriages. And in the Jewish culture, the marriages were arranged. And it is very interesting, as you search the scriptures, where the marriage was not arranged in the scripture, where the dad didn't arrange the marriage, there was always problems. Very interesting. We know the story of Samson, who married a woman named Timnath. And there was problems. Look at that story. And then Jacob, he had to work for 14 years for Rachel and resulted in problems. So the Jewish marriages were arranged, except in one case. And that would be if the husband of the bride died. In that case, then the marriage wasn't arranged according to Jewish custom. The bride would then go and look to his brothers and choose one of them to marry. Now, I'm sure that made for some interesting conversation at home. 
dad is picking a bride, you know, for the son. And the brothers are checking her out, too. And they're like, dad, are you sure? I mean, dad, have you prayed about that one? Look at her. Dad. Maybe was some interesting conversation. The first stage, the engagement stage. The second stage is the betrothal stage. The betrothal stage took place between the ages of 12 and 16 years of age. You might remember Mary was betrothed to Joseph. She was probably around 13 to 16 years old. And it's in this betrothal stage, very interesting, that the soon-to-be bride and groom first met each other because the dads arranged the wedding. They arranged the marriage. They, they, they've never met each other until the betrothal stage. And it's the first time that they meet. It's the fathers who come together and then they settle on a price for the bride. And this price was determined by three things. First of all, the father's wealth, whether he was rich or poor. Secondly, the bride's worth. In those days, they didn't have you know, checks and visa cards and debit accounts. And so they would pay many times with chickens. So how many chickens was she worth? Two chickens. No, I don't think so. That's a little too much. One and a half is tops, man. That's tops. So with chickens or horses or whatever. And then the groom's work, the father's wealth. The price, the father's wealth, the bride's worth, and the groom's work. In cases where the groom's family was poor and, or, and dead, the groom would have to work to pay the price for the bride. Again, Jacob worked for Rachel. Caleb offered his daughter to anyone who conquered the city of Kerjath. Saul offered his daughter Michael to the man who would kill the giant. Shechem fell in love with Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and the price was set. And he had to become circumcised to identify with the Jew. So the price could be paid through work, through war, and through identification. Now, I point this out because I believe that this is a beautiful illustration of what God has done for us. You see, Jesus worked for us 33 years as he ministered on the earth. There was warfare as Jesus fought long and hard on Calvary's cross, shedding his own blood to secure our salvation for eternity. And Jesus identified with us. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he left heaven and he came to the earth and he took on flesh. Flesh and blood. He humbled himself and became a man. He identified with us. Now, as I said, the father has chosen us and we are the bride of his son. We have been betrothed to Jesus and the father has paid according to his wealth. A billion dollars? No, that would be nothing for God. A planet? That would be nothing for God to give. Jesus, God the Father, gave the ultimate price. It was his son, his one and only son. 
Oh, you know, it is found in John chapter 3, verse 16. It's on the screens. Read it with me, will you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. Romans chapter 5, read that in your own time. It says, for God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God gave everything. He loved us so much. He gave everything in order to bring you and to bring myself and the people of the earth into, into communion with him and into fellowship with him and thus into the kingdom in order to make you his bride. Now, after the price was paid, very interesting, the dowry was set aside for the bride. And in cases she would use that dowry in case she became a widow or she became divorced. And part of the dowry was given to the father's bride or to the to the to the bride's dad the father of the bride i keep thinking of that movie father of the bride i'm sorry the father of the bride part of that dowry was given to him and then get this something very very interesting happens at that time they meet together in this room the money is placed on the table along with a contract and this contract basically just says that that this is a serious matter And then the bride and the groom, get this, for the first time, they take the cup that has wine in it, and the groom gives his bride a sip, and he takes a sip. Remember Jesus at the table with the disciples? He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. You remember that? And at this point, they are legally betrothed and married. But they don't live together and they don't consummate the marriage for one year. But the agreement is so binding that if it was called off, they would have to go through a legal divorce. And if the bridegroom died, then she would become a widow. She'd be considered a widow. Well, then the next thing that happens is incredibly fascinating. It's intriguing. After the contract is signed, the cup is drank, the bride would begin to wear a veil for approximately one year. This spoke of the fact that she was taken. The veil distorted her vision. Oh, we know that Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, for now we, the bride of Christ, see through a glass darkly, but then in heaven, in his presence, face to face. Very interesting. And then the bride would begin at that point to go to work on her dress. She would start to make her dress and sew the beads on and hem the dress and, you know, get the dress ready. And while she's working on the dress, get this, the bridegroom is working on a room addition to his father's house. He's building a room. Now, you know, of course, you know, in John chapter 14, Jesus said that I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And he said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. And so the groom would start working. But it was the father, get this, who determined when the house was finished. Now, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, but my father. Interesting. And then, get this, it even gets better. The bride would from time to time receive word that the house was almost done. People, hey, 
the house is almost done. It's almost done. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not ready. My dress is not ready. She put on sewing machine. Get that thing done. Oh, my God. The sleeves are too short. Oh, my beads are not all. And she's sewing and she's working and he's building. It's almost ready. The house is almost ready. Oh, man, I'm getting close. I'm not ready. Hey, hey, it's done, girl. It's done. The house is done. And she's like, great. My dress is ready. And she is ready. And she's waiting for that time. Oh, and the same thing is true of us. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know the times and the seasons. Amen. And when Jesus comes, we need to be ready. And then she would finally hear that final word. The house is done. Now comes the wedding. And it become the custom of the bridegroom and the groomsmen. Get this to come for the wedding in the middle of the night or early in the morning. So the bride needed to be ready. And they would come and they'd be blowing their trumpets and having this party in the middle of the night or early in the morning, blowing their trumpets, shouting and yelling, the bridegroom cometh, the bridegroom cometh. People wake up the wedding today. The bride needed to be ready. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. Or you may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccary.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.